Because the information discussed and provided in the accompanying podcast is prepared for a general audience without investigation into the facts of each particular case, it is not legal advice. Tammy Gaw does not have a lawyer-client relationship with any listeners. The thoughts and commentary about the law contained on this podcast is provided as a service to the community and does not constitute solicitation or provision of legal advice. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us again as we continue our discussion about preventable conditions. If you skip to episode five, go back and listen to the beginning of our conversation, where we discuss the definition of prevention, the implication of this topic in our profession, as well as looking into our first case study. As we transition our discussion to heat illness, I feel the need to say, this is a rampant problem. According to a study done by the CDC that examined heat illness between 2005 and 2009 in high school athletics, they found that an annual average estimate of 9,237 illnesses nationwide occur, with 66% of those occurring during August. As of 2010, according to the National Center for Catastrophic Sport Injury Research, since 1995, there were 31 high school football players who had died from heat stroke. It seems that as a result of that study being published, quote, state athletic associations and individual school districts began to mandate limited practices during certain times of day, practice days required before going to full pads so that athletes could acclimate to the weather, and various other accommodations. However, it may not have had the effect that they wanted, since, quote, according to the NCCSIR, 19 more high school and college athletes have died due to emergency heat-related illness since 2010. I think it's important that I put that information in here to frame our discussion of the cases that we are going to cover. What we will talk about is only a blip on the radar in comparison to how many of these cases actually happen. Let me first start by letting our audience know that Corey Stringer, the namesake for the Corey Stringer Institute, was a professional football player with the Minnesota Vikings who died in August 2001 at the age of 27 from heat illness while participating in training camp. His was the first on-field death in the NFL caused by heat illness. As we look at these cases, you will hear me referencing the Corey Stringer Institute as weighing in on the decision or being quoted in a case. So I wanted all of you to know the importance of that reference. Tammy, how have you seen the law change, if at all, in your time working with and advocating for student athletes and how it pertains to heat illness? Well, since 2001, Corey Stringer is the only NFL player to die from a workout. And after his death, the NFL changed practice protocols and the ATs were bolstered in their ability to recognize and properly treat symptoms. Hmm. Um, and yet, according to Scott Anderson's research, and we've talked about this in the, in the first half of this podcast, that was also reported in Patrick Ruby's arc, article in The Guardian, mm-hmm. 27 NCAA players have died from non-traumatic injuries as a result of intensive exercise. Yeah. And all but one of those non-traumatic deaths happened during off-season workouts. 
Mm. So there's no good reason for college football workouts to be dangerous, let alone deadly. And it goes back to the issue we talked about in the last uh, the last podcast of this comparing football to war right. and the toxic the toxic uh, environment that can right. that can associate this. It also comes back to the reality that high school and college athletes do not have a union. Mm. The NFL Players Association could push for the changes on behalf of their member athletes after the Corey Stringer mm-hmm. tragedy. Colleges don't provide that protection. Mm. And in fact, the NCAA strongly opposes athletes having a union at all because that would mean admitting that they are actually de facto employees mm-hmm. and they don't want that. I, I remember a case of several years ago, I'm forgetting which university it occurred at, but there were actually football players that were attempting to unionize. And I remember that being a really big deal. I am not recalling. That'd be Northwestern. Was it Northwestern? Okay. Yeah, I was going to say it was, it was somewhere Northwestern. in the Midwest. Okay. Do you know any details yeah, and it about can that? Get- well, it can get it can get really technical, but okay. um, there was a difference between it actually because it's a private university. It went uh, it was a decision that went to the neighbor National Labor Relations Board, mm. um, and uh, yeah, there was so it was it did not come out in favor of the athletes. But um, mm. if anyone wants to find out some good information, Kane Coulter was one of the people who uh, one of the people who led that for the for the Northwestern guys. Okay. Um, So it was, I mean, it definitely stuck the toe in the water and it's definitely something that's still part of the discussion because it, it broached the issue from a private university standpoint. Absolutely. I I knew that they weren't successful, but I wasn't sure any of the details as to why, but that makes sense. Um, The door wasn't slammed. Okay. Okay. We can put it that way. Okay. Well, they started the conversation. So someone's got to do that. Uh, I also didn't realize the stat that you brought up, just uh, what you said about 27 players have died from non-traumatic injuries as a result of intensive exercise, and only one of those has been in in-season workouts. So that means 26 deaths have occurred in off-season workouts. And I, I think there is no greater statistic right now than that one that emphasizes the title of this episode, which is preventable conditions. Like you don't have to die from this. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. No. Well, and all you have to see is, I mean, if cross country athletes can run in desert heat, mm. football players can condition mm-hmm. safely. Totally. In, in, in all, in all environments. Absolutely. Mm. So the first case that I want to examine is out of Towson University in the greater Baltimore area, so kind of up by you, involving a football player named Gavin Class, who suffered from heat stroke in August 2013. During a football practice, he had completed a final sprint after having a practice that the coaches remarked as being, quote, a role model for hard work. The head athletic trainer, Nathan Wilder, said, quote, you could see he was fatigued, but never let on that he had a problem. In his final sprint, Gavin became uncoordinated and fell to his knees. The athletic trainers responded, where he then slumped to the ground and eyes rolled in the back of his head. They called 911 and got him into a cold tub where he struggled to remain conscious. He was transported by EMS to a hospital half a mile away where his internal temperature was recorded at 108 degrees. The doctors said, quote, the cold tub probably saved his life as he was probably a few degrees higher than that. His organs eventually shut down, including his heart stopping and liver failure. 
A Baltimore Sun article is quoted as saying, though a liver transplant saved his life, Class's recovery proved a tumultuous ride marked by cancer, pancreatitis, a collapsed lung, pneumonia, shingles, appendicitis, and enough infections to trigger 14 surgical procedures. Tammy, I want to stop here because the details of this case are so familiar with what we saw happen at the University of Maryland and Jordan McNair. Listeners, if you haven't already, go back and listen to our bonus episode for a full discussion on that case. What I mean by that is it is acknowledged by staff that an athlete is struggling, yet they are allowed to continue and both eventually ended up with severe heat illness. My question is, how do we as professionals find that balance between letting an athlete work through discomfort and stopping them from going any further? It's such a hard question because in many ways, it goes back to what we've said in each of these episodes, that knowing and communicating with your athletes is one of the best ways to keep them safe. Mm. Very few people, certainly no one else in the medical, uh, the medical chain, is, are in as good of a position as athletic trainers for a team to sense when an athlete is in distress. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know the difference between if they're faking or, you know, what you believe to be malingering, mm-hmm. as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, my athletes always loved, are like, I have malingering. <laughs> like, yeah, I think you should go look that up. <laughs> uh, so it's like, you shouldn't, that, you should not be proud Sophisticated of Sophisticated word um, for something you shouldn't be proud of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> malingering versus meningitis were going to be, you know, they were going to be just fine. Totally. Um, so that said, um, when in doubt, take the conservative approach and trust your training because you know no one has ever no one has ever died from not working hard enough. Totally, yeah, <laughs> no, right. No one's ever died from exertional heat stroke for not working hard enough. Yeah, and so, yeah. um, you know, that's it, that's just that's the way that we should go about um, and approach it. Well, and trust your training. Yeah, it, it's reminding me even of another factor in in the conversation we've been having throughout many of our episodes, which is the environment in which the athletic trainer is working in and and how they can potentially speak up for themselves or for the athlete. And when we look at that Maryland case, that's a big component of it, of what type of coaching and, and overall environment was there was the athletic trainer being bullied where there are things going on where they felt like if they if they spoke up their job could be at risk and it it reminds me of a couple years ago when the five major conferences for ncaa came out and decided to move forward with the autonomous decision making where they were attempting to separate the medical staffs from the coaching staffs and the intent was to allow a medical staff to make autonomous decisions outside of the implication it may play in the game or whatever else might be going on. Well, yeah, it's the difference between the athletic model and the medical model. Mm -hmm. Um, And the medical model has been proven time and time again to be the way to go. And yet college programs still grasp on with tight little fists to the athletic model. And you see strength coaches who have no business being the decision takers as to when a kid is working too hard or when a medical emergency can come up, running a lot of these practices. And you can also follow 
the the environment, mm. the heat index does not follow a coach. So <laughs> if you see the same environment going from school to school with one coach, mm-hmm. uh, that's not because the barometric pressure just follows on its heel. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and we use this a lot. We use football as an example because obviously this is a um, this is a problem. But the idea of a toxic environment for athletes can be with men's sports. It can be with women's sports. Mm. It can have the gender of the coach has is not dispositive as to whether this can happen. I think many of our listeners could probably think of a women's coach that has, has really pushed the line um, at some point in time in their career. Um, I know I can. So, you know, we, we are focusing on football and on, you know, men's programs and heat illnesses, Mm -hmm. but um, I think it's, I think it's good to note that that is not a, (laughs) it's not a singular, the singular demographic. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, just when, as you were saying about the strength coaches, it just reminded me, you know, how many parallels there are between this situation with Gavin Class and the Maryland case. And, you know, these are only two cases that we're comparing. I'm sure if we pulled up all 27 of these, they would have so many parallels. And that, I think, is what's difficult to talk about because, these are preventable situations. And, you know, as Corey Stringer puts it, exertional heat stroke has been proven to be 100% survivable when immediately recognized and aggressively cooled on site. So it, it, it just is, it's hard to, to talk about all of this knowing that it could have been prevented. But there was some positivity for Gavin Class. He spent the fall 2014 season working out and doing non-contact drills with the team, hoping to suit up for the start of the 2015 season. He was quoted as saying, this was like a big speed bump in my life. I want to be able to say I was the first player to come back from heat stroke and a liver transplant to play football. He went on to receive clearance from his physicians at the University of Maryland Medical Center and experts at the Corey Stringer Institute. However, Towson team doctors determined that he could not play because he was, quote, still a severe health risk and monitoring his condition would be too onerous for the football team's medical staff. Well, with the caveat that I I know nothing Mm -hmm. inside information other than what is publicly available about this, about the, uh, the Towson issue, I would be, I, I would, I would have no problem putting money on the table in Vegas that the Towson team doctors had a conversation with the Towson lawyers. Mm. Um, and that I, I would be very surprised if the concern for litigation was not also largely behind that. Sure. Not to say that they would have just flippantly decided that, you know, the kid's life would not, um, you know, did not have objective and subjective value as well. Sure. But I, I think I think one would find that Towson team doctors had conversations with Towson team lawyers. <laughs> Got it. Sure. So th- that's not any kind of like prejudice. That, that that's just a simply like he gets di- disqualified by the doctors, or as as I understand it, yes. Got it. Okay. Well, I hope he kept a scholarship at least, and he was able to finish school, even if he wasn't able to play football. I don't know any of those. You know, I really should go back and look at that. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure about that. Well, you know, taking a look at how various organizations approach heat illness, 
it's quite apparent that most people see not only the seriousness of this condition, but also the importance in preventing it. So in doing some research, I found that California passed a law requiring what they refer to as cool-down periods for employees, which was an amendment to a labor code already in, already in existence that required obligating employers to provide training and access to shade and adequate drinking water for employees who work outdoors in high heat conditions. Tammy, as proud as I am to see a state caring about its workers, it's a bit disheartening to learn that there are required rest periods for employees and yet nothing in athletics. Well, this is why college athletes should have a union. Full stop. Done. And, and maybe Finished. the employees. Over. <laughs> well, that's it, another podcast um, episode. <laughs> it's an entirely different one. But right. when you mentioned earlier about the about the Northwestern, mm-hmm. um, the Northwestern kids, the um, the College Athletes Players Association mm-hmm. um, is uh, that is an organization that has been advocating for uh, labor rights, and so they are. You know, they're not an officially recognized union. Sure. But um, them and the uh, the National College Players Association, the NCPA, mm-hmm. um, Ramagi Huma, who is a former um, UCLA football player, he is doing fantastic work. If you're in California, you should definitely look up and figure out the work that Ramagi Huma is doing because okay. it is, he's not doing it from the, from the, you know, the, he's not a, he doesn't have a medical background, oh, okay. but he has firsthand experience with this and is, you know, California athletic trainers sort, sort that out, figure him out. They're really doing some great work. So that's, that's the college cool. athletes players association and the national college okay. uh, players association. Okay. But it's, you're right. It's baffling that a group of individuals who are for all intents and purposes employees, it is baffling that they have no codified protection mm. or more importantly, a seat at the table to advocate for their own safety. There are associations within the NCAA, the uh, um, student athlete associations that have representatives of athletes. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to knock that at all, mm-hmm. but they are not, they are not given a seat at the table where the real decisions are being made. Right. So if the athletes don't have a seat at the table in the form of labor rights representation, in the absence of that, it is even more imperative that we as athletic trainers advocate for our athletes' safety. Absolutely. Because we may have the ear of people that shockingly don't, (laughs) that that the athletes don't. Well, and, and so it's interesting. So the California Interscholastic Federation, CIF, they have a heat illness advisory in place, which includes like um, acclimating over a seven to 14 day period. However, me being a part of various Facebook groups and just social media chats, I've seen conversation about athletic trainers struggling to get cooperation from coaches in abiding by this. So what is the responsibility of the athletic trainer or a coach and enforcing recommended guidelines, because I mean, I hear you, I think we do have to be the advocate, but how far can we go or where do we draw the line? Well, that's, stop me if you've heard this before, <laughs> but if a coach is not complying with the safety measures, you have a, a health you as the healthcare professional have a responsibility to take your concerns up the chain of command. Mm. Now, the, I could get, I could start a, I could lay out a guideline that 
everyone had to wear orange on Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. But if I don't enforce it, it doesn't matter. You can have a guideline for anything you want. So exactly. yes, the, the problem with the athletic trainer or the coach enforcing the guidelines is a problem. But the California Interscholastic Federation should be enforcing these guidelines. I as agree. Well, well and, and, and so, to that end, the fact that it's just a guideline. But like you yeah. said, you can call, you can enforce, you can say you have whatever guidelines out there, but unless you enforce it, unless you make it policy, and that's where it's yeah. frustrating is they do enough to say, well, yeah, we've released something on that, but not enough to put themselves on the line Correct. should something ever actually happen. Yeah. And that is the struggle for us because mm-hmm. we don't want as our defense to be that the coach just didn't listen to you. So yeah. you shrugged and said, well, he must not be his, my boss or, uh, he, he'll, the CIF will handle it. Uh, you yeah. know, they'll do whatever. Mm-hmm. No, no. The football coach is not your boss. Mm-hmm. And I am not saying we, we've made this clarification a lot of times because it is very easy for me to sit here and say, you should definitely push back against your coach. Yeah. I have been in that locker room, I have been on those sidelines. Yeah. I know it is not that easy. Right. And I'm not saying there isn't a risk in escalating your concerns, mm-hmm. especially if it's a particularly aggressive coach, mm-hmm. one that has been there for a long time, yeah. one that has a lot of uh, relationships with the administration. Mm-hmm. I understand that. But that coach is not your boss. Right. And if that coach will not do their job and will not satisfy uh, his or her duty of care to your athletes, you can't let yourself be dragged into their negligence. Mm. And mm. like we said before, we use football as an example. This can happen in any sport, right. men or women, no matter the gender of the coach. Yeah. And it is one of the reasons that I wish the NATA had the equivalent of the ethics hotlines that lawyers have yeah. through the state bars. Yeah. I really wish there was a way that athletic trainers could, even anonymously, right. call up and ask questions. Yeah, you've mentioned um, that before, and that is such a cool resource. I mean, yeah. I don't know what it would take to get that off the ground, but I, I see so many people going to social media because they're trying to find peers or trying to essentially yeah. aggregate a number of answers and and find the, the, the one that, you know, is the most plausible. But I, I love that idea of the ethics hotline. And I, I think it could keep us out of a lot of hot water, but also really help guide us in a way that's representative of our professional duties and ethics. <laughs> well, and that's, I mean, how many times have you seen on Twitter, um, help me, is it the anonymous ATC mm-hmm. account? Yeah. Some of the times I see questions that they're asking and I just want to go, oh my gosh, yeah. I've been there. I would, yeah. you know, and I, as a lawyer, I have a hard time being, you know, I can't, I can't engage with that in certain, sure. in certain ways. But then some of the answers that I see on those threads, oh, I yeah. want to just go, oh no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> just like, run, 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 run the other way. <laughs> just a gif of me waving my hands, run, mm-hmm. run, you know, the horror movie, don't go in the basement. Don't go in there. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I, I, I don't think it would be that difficult mm-hmm. because it is a matter of having, we have some incredibly talented and very experienced athletic trainers yeah. in the, in the nation. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be, you don't have to transplant yourself. No, it to, can be totally remotely it, done. And, you absolutely. know, even as I'm thinking about it, it'd be an awesome role for the retired athletic trainers to play because I know they're always absolutely. looking for ways to stay involved, but. Man, the wealth of knowledge they would have 
Yeah, I mean, just last month, I called up two state bars mm-hmm. that I'm not li- I'm not licensed in either of these states mm-hmm. to ask them a question about a practice of law mm-hmm. because of questions I had with a company in another uh, in another jurisdiction. Yeah, and they pointed me towards legal opinions that could help. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they they advised me where I could find the, you know the UPL codes. Don't worry about that listeners. Just, (laughs) but they showed me where to find all these things and it didn't cost me anything. Yeah. It cost me the time I spent on the phone, Mm -hmm. which was not much. So I think it's well past time for the NATA to provide that kind of support to their members, particularly as they move into, um, entry-level masters where you get people that will be coming out with less hands-on experience. We have to, as a community, we have to be there to provide this kind of support and guidance and experience Mm -hmm. to the upcoming athletic trainers, Mm -hmm. or we're going to lose them to burnout, to frustration, Mm -hmm. to a whole variety of things. So we already do. I mean, our our retention rates past the age of 30 just plummet. So it's already there. And Yeah. I mean, it just, I think this, you know, there's so much emphasis on finding a mentor and I'm a huge proponent of it, especially in your first couple of years out, but to have Mm -hmm. a hotline like this to rely on, because a mentor is, uh, you know, one opinion and sometimes you have personal relationships with them and maybe you don't feel comfortable asking them a question because you feel stupid or you don't want them to judge you, which is all understandable, but simultaneously, the NATA and the BOC have such an emphasis on ethics. And I think that all of us are challenged in it regularly. And it's not that you're an immoral human being. It's more just that you're put in very difficult situations that they don't teach you about in school. And I, they're not supposed to teach you about these in school. There's only so much that can happen in two or two years <laughs> or five semesters or whatever it is. And um, yeah, man, that that would be an awesome resource. And I'm going to go put my comment card in the box for them, for them on that one. Well, it also, if the NATA or the BOC were the ones that were handling this, mm-hmm. they're the ones that are on, I mean, you know, staying on top of all the position statements that yeah, come out, staying totally. on top of all this, they are the ones, they, they are the pinnacle of this mountaintop of information mm-hmm. that trickles mm-hmm. downhill to us. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where the home should be. Yeah. For this kind of support for athletic trainers. Totally. Yeah. You know, um, the so the NCAA sports medicine handbook addresses both heat illness and rhabdomyolysis under the context of preventing sudden death. And we talked about rhabdo in our previous episode with uh pre-existing conditions, but they identify both as an important complication that to student athlete health that everyone in athletics should be aware of. They listed 10 recommendations that the Inner Association Task Force for Preventing Sudden Death in Collegiate Conditioning Sessions. Well, that was a mouthful. (laughs) They came up with 10 recommendations that that association or task force had came up with. And so I, I will share some of those. But Tammy, I'm interested in your thoughts on just the simple fact that a task force with that kind of name even had to be assembled. I mean, I think that that would indicate that there've been a number of deaths in just conditioning sessions, that if an entire group was assembled and had the task with coming up with a, you know, preventing sudden death in this situation, what are your thoughts on that? (laughs) 
<laughs> that is, yes, it is. It is the mouthful and does not even have a good acronym. Right. Uh, to, or, you know, it, it's not an acronym or an initialism. It's it's no. just a whole lot of words right. um, for a very important subject. Yeah, but that was published in 2014. Mm-hmm. And the NCAA was created in, what, 1906 mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. he related to us uh, football players. So the mm-hmm. fact that the NCAA has, as an institution, so thoroughly abdicated responsibility for mm. oversight of the health and safety of athletic students, mm. but obviously, tangent, has no problem inserting themselves in the cases of kids selling their own shoes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because God forbid someone take a dime out of the pocket of the people who get paid the huge money, huge money while the kids yeah. doing the actual work get none of it, mm. and our tax dollars are paying for the FBI to prosecute them, tangent over. The fact yeah. that they will not enforce and really... Uh, I'll say put the foot on the neck of the people yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. of the school to actually enforce this health and safety. Um, it, 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 in, my per, in my opinion, the NCAA has gotten to the point now where with respect to the safety of student athletes, they're entirely unfit for purpose. They don't mm. have, they, they do not have the focus or the actions. They do not take the actions mm-hmm. that are incumbent upon them as an organization which was formed after deaths of student athletes and goes to great lengths to not call them employees. I it's just, it's not there. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the understatement of the century. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. I, I didn't realize that the NCAA was created as a result of deaths of football players. That's crazy. Um, but even taking that a step further, I, to your point, the fact that in some ways they want to be so controlling and those ways are mostly financial and yet in other ways, like you said, they've completely abdicated the responsibility of this. And I just don't understand how from a law perspective, they can continue to get away with this. And, and maybe that's your point is that things are starting to come to a head or it's starting to fester more than it ever has before. Um, yeah. I mean, I would like, uh, I would like to think so, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, when it, it's, it's interesting how a hundred plus years later we're circling around totally. because it was when the NCA was created, it was created at a time where football was in danger of being abolished as a result of being deemed to be too dangerous a sport. Mm. So I think, and I'm sure some of our listeners will uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I recall, I think in the 1905 season, mm-hmm. uh, 18 players died during what? games. What? I think so. That yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's why in, in 1906. And so, you know, Bill Roosevelt, who really wanted to save football, uh, gathered a bunch of people, called them up to the White House, mm-hmm. where they agreed on reforms to improve safety. And what we know as the NCAA was formed. Uh, shortly, shortly after that. Interesting. Wow. Thank you for that history lesson. I had no idea. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, and, let's see. I think it's a Mark Twain quote, whereas history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just had an image of two gals a hundred years ago having conversation about how inept the NCAA was. And <laughs> here we are a hundred years later having the same conversation. I'm going to, I have a friend who's a, who's a caricature artist. So I'm going to need her to draw that up for us. That would be great. We'll get that out. It'll be our list. new art. Yeah. 
So like I said, there were 10 recommendations. Um, They're all pretty straightforward. What you would assume, do not use exercise and conditioning activities as a punishment. Introduce new conditioning activities gradually. Develop and practice at least annually the institution's emergency action plan. All things that we've become very familiar with. And the NATA has a number of resources available regarding heat acclimatization and rhabdo, um, as well as another a number of other organizations that have various resources available. K- Corey Stringer Institute is, you know, namely, but uh, the American Academy of Sports Medicine, um, the U.S. Soccer, I mean, OSHA. The fact that this is so widely recognized, again, is part of what makes this topic so ridiculous to talk about. It, it's like, how, why should we even be able to put a whole episode about this together when it is so widely recognized as an issue and yet people are still dying. So the gravity of heat-related illness remains a consistent concern to this day. And as I know, there was uh, even a recent legislation in front of Florida representatives to vote on the requirement for cold tubs. This was at the beginning of the 2018 school year. And the Florida High School Athletic Association had previously determined that it would only require basic life-saving equipment. But Senator Kathleen Pasadomo of Naples, Florida, decided to construct legislation requiring access to cold tubs and the use of wet bulb thermometers. The leadership of the FHSSA, which is the Florida High School Association that oversees athletics there, they passed this decision onto legislators saying quote, a mandate might expose this agency to greater liability. So again, Tammy, similar to what you said about someone called their lawyers, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I I can't say that this doesn't surprise me, Mm -hmm. uh, that it surprises me coming out of Florida. Um, Because I agree with Douglas Casa, who's the head of the Corey Stringer Institute. Mm -hmm. And it really is. He says, his quote is, it is really a failure of responsibility. Yeah. End quote. And Florida leads the nation in deaths of high school athletes from exertional heat stroke, I right. believe. Yeah, uh, that's a yeah. Corey Stringer. I, that's from the, the Stringer Institute. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't believe that that, I don't believe anyone is, has usurped that. Um, and so these administrators are, are saying, to, right? That's not really a statute. No, thank you. This is not a goal. <laughs> yeah. Please, let's not. But these administrators are saying, you know, it might cause coaches to serve as medical personnel. Well, you know how you prevent coaches from serving medical personnel? You hire medical personnel. You hire medical personnel. <laughs> this is this is hardly differential calculus here. You right. you don't want coaches to be the medical personnel, so you hire medical personnel. Oh, but sure. that would create a like, burden financially, right? <laughs> uh, I guess if we're going to put money on the value of life of kids, yeah, sure. exactly, I exactly. Don't want to be in that room, but yeah. So there would be a duty to train and Mm. to use the equipment. And if they're not doing that right, there's a chance for exposure. So again, the lawyers definitely, you know, weighed in on that. But that's why you hire medical personnel. Exactly. We have said this countless times already. We will say this countless times more. If you cannot afford to provide basic safety, you should not be allowed to offer the sport. All caps, full stop. Yeah. And, And yet they are. It, yeah. I, I, so, and they're collecting money from it. <laughs> more they're collecting money yeah, and yeah. sports fees, mm-hmm. but they don't have a responsibility to the safety of these kids. 
miss me with that entirely. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. Well, and, and so let me piggyback on that question and ask you, is there ever a time where attempting to prevent a situation could cause further legal ramification for an athletic trainer? Or is it always prudent to attempt to prevent a situation? Well, I won't say ever or never um, mm-hmm. because ever good. It's right. never a good never thing say to say never. ever or never. <laughs> yeah. But the mantra, you know, if you see something, say something mm-hmm. is always a good tactic to employ. Right. And it's a little depressing, but thinking through what the worst case scenario would be is part and parcel to our job. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of our job to, we, we've talked about it before, we are talking about preventative medicine. Yeah as opposed to reactive medicine, right. you know, preventative legal strategy as opposed to reactive legal strategy. Right. Mm-hmm. That's part of the deal. And there are times when Good Samaritan laws can come into play to provide some level of protection for medical professionals stepping in. Mm-hmm. But if you see something and you don't say something, that that can be problematic um, legally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really where you start to get yourself in trouble. And like yeah. you've said, and has been stated numerous times as well is, document, document, document. So absolutely. If you feel contemporaneous like notes, contemporaneous they're not just for special counsel <laughs> investigation. Seriously. <laughs> and that note taking is showing to be quite effective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, as can be applied to all legal situations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that I would be remiss if I didn't bring up emergency planning in relation to this topic. And I know we discussed it during our previous episodes on pre-existing conditions, but it's an obvious point to kind of make here as well. So of course we want to prevent situations from getting too far, but there comes a point where if the opportunity is missed, it becomes an emergency situation and preparation in that area then becomes vital. So in what we heard regarding the cases discussed for this topic, it seems like not only were things not prevented, but maybe not even acted upon in a timely manner once they did evolve into an emergency situation. So where or how do you see that one becomes the other, like if, if prevention turns into negligence? Well, it's one of the situations in life where you have to look at it in both directions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, first, athletic trainers do the work up front to prevent an injury or illness from happening. Okay, we yeah. do our best to lay the groundwork for prevention. Okay. But second, you have to understand that it is reviewed in hindsight as well mm-hmm. in the case of an injury occurring. So at that point, the court or entity reviewing the case will look back at whether the efforts made at prevention breached a duty of care. So you cannot prevent every injury. And sometimes there will be a perfect storm that the best laid plans could not have prevented. Exactly. Um, But there are best practices. And if you're not complying with them, you should, in all seriousness, be prepared to have to defend that position in court. And I would not want to do that. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I also want to take a moment here to talk about the use of rectal thermometers in relation to heat illness. So this is a more recent proficiency that has been introduced to athletic training education programs and is the current recommendation for obtaining an 
accurate internal temperature. And there was a lot of controversy when this skill was introduced with you know, the obvious concerns of sensitive areas and general discomfort with the procedure. However, both science and procedures in all other areas back this up, yet it remains difficult to implement, especially at the secondary school or any type of youth population. So when this has come up in our business, mine specifically, We'll speak directly with clients to ask if they're willing to allow for this. And, uh, you know, basically so far, it's come back as a unanimous no. And so I, I did some kind of uh, very informal research via a poll on Facebook asking, <laughs> not hey. scientific research guys, <laughs> um, but, you know, I asked what secondary school athletic trainers are doing about this. And the overwhelming majority said that they don't use it. And the responses kind of ranged from, you know, my medical director, admin, hospital outreach won't approve it, or uh, the fire department's right down the street and, and they can respond and, and do that instead. And, you know, certainly it seems that despite this being best practices and stated as the recommendation by most sources, athletic trainers aren't widely doing it yet. And so, Tammy, my question is, let's assume an athletic trainer has never thought to bring it up to their admin. They just assume that it's a new best practice. They get trained in how to properly do it. They purchase the equipment and then they perform it on an athlete. Would they need some kind of special permission to do this? I, I don't think we need to talk about it in terms of needing of, of a special permission. Um, <laughs> Let's, let's just start that this is a basic communication issue, mm. and just assuming everyone is on the same page is not the best way to go about running a sports medicine department. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, think, think of it in terms of your interaction with your athletes, and as you said, especially in the cases of minors mm -hmm. with parents and things like mm -hmm. that. So imagine you're a parent who doesn't know anything about rectal temp mm -hmm. being gold standard. Mm -hmm. All you know is your kid is in distress and you don't know what you're seeing an athletic trainer do to your child on the sidelines. Yeah. How would that make you feel as a parent sure. or as an administrator who yeah. is all of a sudden wondering Whoa, what in the name of is all is good and holy is going yeah. on on the sidelines? Yeah. Um, you know, the athletes don't necessarily understand what's happening. This is sports medicine in a silo is never the best way to go about doing it. Sure. So it's, it's communication. Mm -hmm. But I think also the communication has to come from, again, the organizations, you know, the athletic trainers, the NATA and the, yeah. you know, larger medical groups that can help explain and dispense information for this. This shouldn't solely be on the back of the athletic trainer mm -hmm. to explain a very sensitive procedure yeah. that could be done on minors. Or even, I mean, if you tried to do that without any heads up to a college football player yeah. or to a, you know, a, a wrestler, women's or volleyball a, player yeah. on the sideline, mm -hmm. less likely with the heat illness. But mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, that is sports medicine in the silo, not a thing. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you bring up a great point. You're talking about people that are thinking about this in terms of, you know, when you when your clients are talking about, you know, the directors and the admins mm -hmm. and the athletic trainers that are being told about 
this by entities, mm-hmm. they're thinking about it in terms of their liability of insurance with respect to, you know, nuisance claims, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and molestation mm-hmm. claims, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If you feel that, if you feel that strongly, and I feel like we should feel that strongly, mm-hmm. but you can't just off the cuff it. Hmm. So then with that said, what responsibility does an athletic trainer have to their patients knowing that taking a rectal thermometer, taking a rectal temp is best practices? Like, are there situations where medical providers are limited in their ability to practice because someone is uncomfortable or is, is medicine supposed to transcend that? Well, it's just, it's not that easy of a question because there are, with certain ages, there are issues with consent yeah. Yeah. That, are, that are coming up with this. If you have minors and the parents don't think that that's what they signed for consent to medical treatment, mm-hmm. you can imagine having to argue through that. And the topic of rectal temp is still the subject, as you mentioned before, a yeah. good, it's a subject of a good deal of discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we should always operate with best practices in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but it goes back to the communication, the documentation, making people, uh, you know, understand this. And I understand athletic trainers being uncomfortable mm-hmm. with it. You know, we're talking about the, the uncomfortability of an administrator or the parents or even the athlete. Yeah. This is not, this is not taping an ankle. And I don't mean to be flippant about it that sure, way, but th- sure. it, this is very, very uncomfortable for most people, mm-hmm. I think. Anecdotally, mm-hmm. I would say 100% of the people I know are not thinking, God, I really hope I have a chance to do this. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> um, 100% yeah. of them. But I think the NHA needs to be, needs to better equip mm-hmm. athletic trainers mm-hmm. uh, with the tools they need to explain why this needs to happen mm-hmm. and, and with the comfortability of it and things like that. Well, and and here's what I will say is that when we approach our clients with this topic and, you know, their knee-jerk reaction is absolutely not, but then as a result of them saying absolutely not, to your point about documentation, we then have them sign something that says that you are allowing our athletic trainers to practice outside of what is considered best practices, which is difficult for them too, you know, so it, it really makes them have to think about what is the best decision here. And, and, and I don't know that there is a right or wrong answer. There's just a lot to be weighed. But certainly if NATA was able to help other people, you know, we, we have lawyers at, at, at our disposal and as do they. And But if this is just the secondary school athletic trainer trying to defend themselves to a school district, to a board, to, you know, whoever it is, they're going to be up against a tough fight. Well, and that's if you assume that they're a full-time athletic trainer right. for that institution. If you're True a that. per diem athletic trainer, I mean that's that's a whole different level mm-hmm. of a whole different level of accessibility. Um, so yeah, and it, it is part of the. I mean, it's great that you that you have them sign that because they do need to understand that. And when they sign it, I guarantee you, they thought more about it. Oh, of course. And, yeah, you know, and and they don't know what they don't know. Sure. These people are not staying on top of what sports medicine practice guidelines are coming out. I mean, I'll be very impressed if they are, but I think they've probably got other things on their plate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, communicating with them, having a good relationship with them Mm -hmm. uh, 
to try and explain why this is best practices. And yes, we know it's not ideal as far as everyone's general comfort, but Mm -hmm. comfort be damned when the result is whether or not a kid is seriously injured or died. Yeah, exactly. And, And honestly, in my experience, when you level with them from that perspective, they're, they're on board with you. Like Uh this is, this is uncomfortable and nobody hopes that it happens. And like you said, hundred percent, nobody wants to do it. But the fact is all of the science demonstrates that this is what best practices is. And if you want to avoid a death on your hands, a potential death, we need to have the permission to be able to do this. So, um, yeah, we've been able to turn several conversations around, but it's not easy. And I wouldn't wish it on the individual athletic trainer. You know, we are having these conversations on behalf of our athletic trainers. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's it's tough waters to navigate. It is. Tammy, I, I know that uh, an area that's really important to you is the focus on an athlete as a whole person, their quality of life, and and not just a commodity. So how do you feel that that idea applies uh, in how we've seen the athletes treated in regards to just general preventable conditions? Well, yeah, I, I do. It's um, I, I do feel like a lot of people treat athletes as a commodity. Um, mm-hmm. But I think in this particular case, I'd like people to think about even just a slightly different faction of this. And this is about how our work on preventable conditions can be an accessibility or a healthcare literacy question. Uh, Um, mm -hmm. Because if you're talking about differences in socioeconomic demographics and how expensive, I mean, we're recording this in December, uh, which means open enrollment is going on. And, you know, you can walk down the street and hear people complaining about the price of healthcare premiums and they're not wrong, but we may be the only healthcare provider that Mm -hmm. some of these athletes can afford to see. Yeah. That's a reality that has to be taken into account. I mean, they, you know, the pre-participation physical, sure, that can be done through various entities totally. that host that and whatever. Mm-hmm. But we can't assume that these kids have gone in for all these full screenings mm-hmm. and they go do a wellness check once a year. Mm-hmm. That's not a reality. Yeah. And so we have to think about it as a healthcare literacy question right. and approach these athletes and their families. You know, if you're talking about youth and minors, you may recognize something that a parent may not, you know, or you can explain to them how this, you know, these preventable conditions, Mm -hmm. if something happens and you're the one that's telling the parents and being able to communicate with this, that can be a larger scale conversation. So I really do think it's, it's important to remember how vital we can be and how sometimes we're the only source of information that some people have. I I couldn't agree more with you. And I actually think that as a profession and even as individuals, I would almost say that we're like hyper aware of that, but that's part of what's so difficult is that you can see something so clearly from a healthcare perspective and you know that there are resources or access that's out there and yet you can't get your athlete to it or, or their parent can't get them to it. And Yep. In in speaking with so many athletic trainers across the country, and I think that we're I'm I'm mainly thinking of people sub collegiate level, uh, because mm-hmm. once they've reached that, you know, kind of access kind of opens up completely. But there are so yeah. many athletic trainers that are frustrated with this idea of 
you know, there's more that can be done, but either I'm shackled, you know, I'm part-time, I don't have the resources, I don't have the access, or, you know, the parent works two jobs, there's literally no time to take them to an urgent care or to get crutches fitted, or they can't afford yeah. to go to CVS and pay for $30 ankle braces or whatever it is, yep. you know, it, it's, and and I, I'm so thankful you brought that up because healthcare literacy and just general accessibility is a huge aspect of the work that we do. And I think it is very relevant in the topic of preventable, preventable conditions. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think I would say that in summary, I feel like the topic of both rhabdo and heat illness have been one of the most frustrating to talk about because they're life-threatening situations that can easily be avoided. And it seems that in most cases, the issue of ego or bravado may be getting in the way of what is best for an athlete. And with that said, you know, the, the athletic trainer may be at risk of litigation if they aren't advocating in the proper ways or attempting to prevent as much as possible. And with prevention being one of the primary pillars of our profession and, and arguably what sets, sets us apart, it's imperative that we are allocating the necessary time and attention to having those conversations and putting policies in place and documenting and having the, the open lines of communication and just doing what we can to protect both ourselves and our athletes. And there's, yeah. an, there's a, a number of resources that uh, we've mentioned and will be made available in the show notes. And, uh, you know, it, it just is, is, is crucial. So um, I don't know if, if there's anything else that you want to add, feel free to riff, but I can't help but feeling just a tad bit frustrated after, after finishing with this topic. Yeah. Um, it, uh, I, I, I don't find, I don't have an easy answer for it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've got a couple of quips and, you know, I have the experience and I deal with, I deal with stress via sarcasm sometimes. <laughs> so there is that, but it, it is, it, it should be frustrating to us yeah. that there are literal lives on the line and we are in ability, we, we are in a position and have the ability to suss out, you know, pre-existing conditions that we talked about before, mm -hmm. preventable conditions that we can, you know, help save lives. Mm -hmm. And, uh, maybe the more people that get frustrated, uh, the, the easier it is to make some change. So That's reach out point. to us, tell us your stories, yeah. but just know that you're not alone. Seriously. That's a really good point. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. Awesome. Well, that is all for today. Now that you cool. finished listening, you are eligible for a free CEU. Please navigate to theadvantage.com slash CEU to work through the course material, including additional reading available. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to earn your free Category A CEU by logging on to theadvantage.com slash CEU and taking the quiz. If you're enjoying listening or know a colleague looking for free CEUs, please share our link and don't forget to like us on social media at The Advantage. Thank you to Mr. Logistics for the music you've heard throughout.